Hello everyone, welcome back to Old Soul Podcast. My name is Bree, that's spelled B-R-E-I. Thank you so much. Today I will be speaking about a film that is rather nostalgic for me growing up as a kid. Uh, probably, maybe shouldn't have been watching Crooklyn as a kid, but also it's one of those, you know, black films that just was on when I was a kid on the television and maybe my parents were watching it, so I watched it, but other than that, there's really no reason probably why I should have been watching Crooklyn, but I decided that I wanted to start a black film series where I do commentary videos specifically about black films, and to me, um, black films are films that are made by black people for black people and not so much black films that just have a few black people in them and a black director but it caters toward the white audience um, you know we can get into the logistics of that with films like The Help and Green Book where there's a lot of controversy over who those films actually are for and I personally think that it's mostly for the white gays um, and so when I decide to do commentary videos about black films, I'm picking ones that I feel like that were made for black people, by black people, with black actors. And I will start off saying that I think a lot of the black films that I speak about are probably going to be black American films, just because that's all that I've really been exposed to as a black American in America. Um, and I only ever really talk about films that are just film that I do for the black film series. Um, and that film is, I've already mentioned it, but Crooklyn, released in 1994. Um, it has a 115-minute runtime, rated PG-13, and it's in the genre of comedy and drama. The director of Crooklyn is Spike Lee because what is black American film if not including Spike Lee? <laughs> the summary on IMDb is Spike Lee's vibrant semi-autobiographical portrait of a school teacher, her stubborn jazz musician husband, and their five kids living in Brooklyn in 1973. Okay. So, sorry, I will be looking at my notes quite a few times here. I, again, chose Crooklyn because it feels like a coming-of-age story and is a coming-of-age story, I think, after watching it again after so long. Uh, I haven't seen it in forever and so I recently watched it, so I don't know roughly the time frame of when I didn't watch it, but it had to be like years upon years upon years. And I realized just how coming of age it was, but it didn't always stay with the child perspective. There are definitely moments where we got to look into the lens of the parents. And I'm just gonna sort of do a summary um, from the ideas that I break down. Um, so I will start. The film does this great um, intro sequence where there's a boy on a balcony outside in Brooklyn, right? And he's like, on your mark, get set, go. 
and then the film, well, the film, the camera falls down from the balcony and shows these two, three, four boys running, racing. Obviously, he was, you know, counting out so that they could start racing. And then we see kids doing jump rope and hopscotch, you know, all the childlike things outside, living, probably summer. And you get a glimpse of the personalities, um, the neighbors, so on and so forth. Based on the film, and if this really is an autobiographical uh, take of Spike Lee's childhood, we get predominantly black neighborhood in Brooklyn, but we do have elements, some white neighbors, some Latinx neighbors, however they identify. Um, we do get more eccentric characters, more typical masculine characters, the whole nine, which is really interesting. Um, and you can see how um, Spike Lee really is intentional on showing each element. I do think, I will point it out here, sometimes when we have like a character who it seems like he's probably um, identifies as homosexual, he's called Tony Eyes, there is homophobia very blatantly in the film and I don't appreciate it. I think they do sort of like this weird redemption take in the film where they sort of get along. Um, there's like this little ongoing battle between one of the neighbors and the main family that Troy, the main character, is in, which I'll get more into, but I'm branching out here, not really in order, just because I want to talk about it. Um, and anyway, they don't treat him very nicely outside of the fact that he has like a ton of cats and <laughs> there's like a scene where they show a close-up of his sofa and it's like ripped to shreds. Um, and it's just a lot going on. There's like this dispute over the kids throwing garbage in his lawn and so on and so forth. My point is that they can dislike him without being homophobic and it's just so annoying to see on screen and I don't care if it was made in the 1990s. Like, let's get that shit out of here. So I'm just gonna bring that up. That's one negative thing that I didn't really like about the film. Um, there's also this take on the glue sniffers who literally, I think Spike Lee, did he play one of these characters? So the glue sniffers, they like put bags over their mouth and glue so they can get high, whatever. They're broke, they're always bothering the kids about money so they can do drugs or whatever the fuck they're doing. Um, I don't really think they're that important, but maybe uh, if this was like a normal thing, uh, in Brooklyn in the 1970s and he just wanted to put it in there. Okay, uh, I feel like sometimes they terrorized those kids. <laughs> they were kind of bullies and I could have gone without them being in the film. I do want to say that there were, there was like a few shots that they were in that were really good. Uh, there's this sort of dream state scene in which Troy, our main character, um, who's a young girl, is running from them, probably because they really do harass the kids in real fucking life. Um, but 
they were like chasing her and she's running from them. I don't know if she's running from them or she was on a bike, but it, either way, I think she starts to like float away from them and the dream's hazy and dark and there's a dark street and I just think it's really interesting how Spike Lee decided to make her nightmare obviously very unrealistic because that's sort of how dreams are, but it felt very much like a dream. And then changing into probably a nightmare for Troy from her perspective. And then there's another shot with them where they're getting high and it seems like, and to sort of, I guess, project that on the screen, there's a moment where Spike Lee decides to flip the screen upside down and they're sort of upside down within the frame, which is really interesting. I don't know why he did it, but I think it looks cool and it's sort of untraditional for films. I thought it was amazing. There's also another scene where Troy and her younger brother, it might have been them going after the glue sniffers again, or some other bullies anyway. Her younger brother is getting teased by someone and she runs outside with like a little weapon behind her head, maybe a bat or something. And the scene is really dysfunctional in that they're moving toward you and it's almost like they're on something that's rolling because they're going almost too smoothly toward the camera and we're really maybe a medium close-up on both the young girl and her brother and her hands are up over her head and she's angry and the boy next to her, her brother, is pointing at who is like bullying her and it's just so cool how Spike Lee decided to do that on like a sort of rolling object It seems like they were rolling on something. Um, but it's just, it's interesting and I wanted to point all those out. I wanted to point out the things that I didn't like about the film and point out some scenes that are really cool. Um, again, this one's not going to be so much of a summary. I'm just going to point out things about the film that I liked. Most of the summary is just going to be the sort of uh, brief bio from IMDb that I mentioned when I started the commentary. But I will say that I was really, really shocked by how new wave some of those scenes felt. And this might be a reach because I know French New Wave is sort of the non-traditional. And in fact, let me let me look up an actual definition of what French New Wave is for anyone that doesn't know what French New Wave is and hasn't seen. The French New Wave was a film movement from the 1950s and 60s and one of the most influential in cinema history, also known as something in French that I can't pronounce, so I'm going to skip it. It gave birth to a new kind of cinema that was highly self-aware and revolutionary to mainstream filmmaking. And something I will note about French New Wave outside of the non-traditional, which usually the traditional is seen as the American Hollywood way of storytelling in terms of film and how there's certain acts and character caricatures or tropes, whatever. French New Wave didn't always have a plot. Well, it doesn't always seem like it has a plot, but it's very aware, almost satire-like. And French New Wave has really different ways to film and everything feels interesting and sort of unexpected. But French New Wave also has this really cool thing that they do with the use of their music. And 
Although I don't feel like Crooklyn does this, but it just gave me French New Wave vibes in the way that those scenes that I spoke about felt very dysfunctional. Within the plot, don't get me wrong, it felt like there was a seamless plot going on, but sometimes these scenes were shot so out there that it felt so New Wave. Okay, again, this might be a reach, but I'm going to connect it. And there's something about the way that Crooklyn uses sound in the film and music in the film that feels very much like Spike Lee's childhood in the in black culture. Um, a lot of really good R&B, 70s. Okay, yeah, so that's expected. And especially when you're trying to put a time frame um, or time period within a movie. Makes a lot of sense. But it's the way, it's the moments when he has, you know, the kids are one minute, you know, playing and then they hear music and they start singing along with the song that brings you back into, oh, this is the 70s, you know, music's very, very much a part of the culture, very much a part of everyone's culture. It's telling of the time, but it's also the way that the dad, um, who's Woody, is a jazz musician and how he has this whole thing where he wants to make music good music not just the rock and roll that everyone prefers and but he can't make a living off of it right when it's no longer convenient for a certain audience to profit off of you you know you can't make a living off of the music that your people started and that you love right he makes much more money um, composing and, you know, I guess playing music that's more in style and people prefer, but when he wants to play jazz or he wants to play more R&B or something like that, no one wants to give him a chance, which is actually a big problem in the film because he can't pay the bills and his wife is stuck doing all the labor um, while he can't let go of his dreams, but it's turning more into pride and it's hurting everyone around him. And it's the whole, I guess it's a dichotomy of adulthood. Um, how much of your dreams do you give up to be an adult? Usually all of them. Okay, so that's something that's going on. But there's a musical element there where he's like really talented musician, but he's also super broke. But he also could not be broke if he just decided to play certain types of music. Music's just all around this film. And I feel like it's like that in New Wave, but also it's part of the diegesis in a way where, like I said, it'll just play just like any other film where music will just play and the characters might not necessarily be aware. And then you realize, no, they are aware because they're seeing the song in the film that the audience is watching. So then it's a part of the diegesis. And then there's this moment where the kids are in the bedroom and they're watching TV and they're not supposed to be watching TV, by the way, it's like bedtime. Anyway, Soul Train comes on, which is like the most iconic show from the 70s, okay? Everybody who's anybody knows what Soul Train is. And of course in Soul Train, there's like a whole lot, there's like uh, people on either side, left and right, and then there's like an empty aisle and then one person goes down that aisle dancing to whatever song is playing and they're just recording it and they have all these amazing dance moves it's like do you have bones do you have bones <laughs> anyway it's amazing it's a part of the culture completely if you haven't heard of soul train i don't know where you've been 
and then the kids are sort of emulating it and reflecting it and like making their own dance moves while they're listening to it and they're singing. There's other moments where they're listening to sort of like rock songs and they're singing in the bedroom. This could also be just a thing that kids do, but also escapism, like mom and dad are fighting. Let's watch TV and let's sing this song. Um, there's this commercial, this catchy commercial. Now, not all of this plays into how French New Wave necessarily delves into music and um, how scenes are shots, but I feel like the way that music is very much embedded in this film is obviously intentional, whether it's just nostalgic for Spike Lee as a director um, putting this on the screen, um, or just some elements of New Wave have branched into this type of film really like it. I wanted to bring it up because I felt like that was super interesting. Um, so I talked about the dad. Uh, I guess I should say overall, it's this getting into summer or like late, maybe spring, and there's a young girl named Troy. She's the main character. She, well, I think she's the main character, even though it branches off in perspective. Troy is the only daughter in a family of five children. Um, but a family of like seven, two parents, mom and dad, Caroline and Woody. And there's Troy, the only girl main character, and then her like other brothers. Uh, one brother is older than her, and I think the other three are younger than her, um, or right at the same age a little bit. One of them is very clearly the baby. Um, I will say that the boys, the young kid actors are excellent. Uh, Troy stands out more mostly because she's the only girl, but also the camera really does focus in on her and her development and growth as a child. Um, and then the other boys, there are moments where they stand out person in the film. Just the annoying siblings. And then also the cute sibling and you know, they don't have as much of a presence as Troy does. And I do kind of wish that was different, but it's not lackluster. It's not like they aren't present at all, like a side character or shadow. It's just they don't stand out in the way that Troy does, which might have been intentional, so whatever. And it doesn't do anything like negative to the film. I just think it might have been heightened a little bit with more scaling down and honing in on them as well. And then, so the mom, Caroline, or is it Car Carolyn? Carolyn. She is a teacher and she's trying to raise her family on a teacher's salary because like I said, the dad's having this whole pride thing where he can't give up his dream for a second just to pay the bills. Um, there's definitely elements of social class in the film. Um, Woody have a scene where they're fighting about money, which I feel like is very realistic. and. The kids get involved because they hear it and then they see them arguing. I don't think there's any physical violence until to the point where there's like toxicity, but it definitely gets close to that at one point. Close, but before anything can I think really get anywhere, the mom kicks him out, uh, kicks Woody out and he leaves for like a good period of time because she's tired of it. She's tired of, you know, getting treated like shit in a house that she's keeping afloat, right? And there's this whole, you know, roles, uh, sexism, so on and so forth. Not unusual. Don't want to spend much time talking about it because, you know, I, I think it's, I think gender roles are stupid. Um, and this is the 70s. Yeah, 
whatever. Um, but I do think it's really cool that the mom really, like, takes on this thing and really tries to make the most to, to help herself and her kids, um, even though she shouldn't have to do that. But she also doesn't take on this trope of, I'm the strong black woman, no matter what, I can take it all. Because no, that's definitely not uh, what happens here. And she is strong in the sense that, like, she's like, you know what, you're going to treat me like crap, then you can get the fuck out of my house, right? Um, but I'm also going to take care of my babies because I'm their parent and that's my job. But I also have a breaking point, so are you going to help me or not? So I really, there could be a line where people are like, well, she does fall into this trope, but I think it's executed in a way where she's humanized, definitely humanized in a way that a lot of black female characters are not always feminized. Okay, and then we get into all that hoopla and we see Troy, uh, when it comes to social class, how she goes through sort of this coming-of-age identity thing where she's trying to figure out who she is, what she wants to be like. Uh, there's this mention of food stamps and Troy being ashamed of having to deal with food stamps. There's a situation where their lights get cut off because they couldn't afford to pay the bill. There's the thing where they have this, they're, I think they're pretty well off. They seem to have a decent sized house, but again, I think the husband was like really successful in the past. Um, they even have like a tenant, like there's someone living with them who pays them rent. So there's levels to this again too, where like they're not that well off, like they still have money issues, but I think there's some mention in the past where he used to make a lot of money and now he, just, he doesn't make as much money, um, so they can't sustain it anymore. And you know, money really does fluctuate. You could have a ton of money three months before and then things just change. So. And I mean, Carolyn's a teacher, so she must have gone to school and gotten an education. I don't know a lot of their background, but it's it seems like things are falling apart, but they also seem well off because their house looks fairly nice um, and large. And I don't know how much houses or apartments go for in Brooklyn, but it looks huge. But again, this is the 70s. Maybe things are, things are probably different back then. Um, so that's something with social class. Troy has a lot of moments where she's stealing things because her friends are doing it, but also I think she gets sort of a thrill from it. And I guess to just prove that she can do it, I think most of the time she gets caught though. <laughs> and, uh, but Troy knows it's wrong. Um, she gets teased by her siblings and by her siblings' friends and she stands up for herself. Her mom, there's like a whole scene where her mom makes her go apologize to one of these boys. <laughs> It's kind of playful, but also like uh, she's kind of pissed off about it. And you're seeing her grow. She's looking in the mirror, like at her face, at her body, really giving you the up close reflection of her questioning herself as a person. Uh, I feel like it's great to have this on screen, coming of age, young woman, young black girl how she sees herself, how do other people see her. There's even mentions in the film of texturism, colorism. They're very aware of these things at a very young age. Troy's talking to like her other cousins. They're very, very aware of what's going on, at least to a certain extent. And um, I did question one thing where they use the N-word towards each other but based off the captions and what I heard, I think they were using ER at the end. 
and I didn't really find that believable because I have never grown up in a situation where other black people are referring to each other with the n-word and the hard er at the end. Is that a thing that was happening in the 70s? Was it supposed to be a joke? I don't know if I just misheard it or the captions were just done not right, but that kind of threw me off. I was like, were they really referring to each other with the hard er in the 70s? I don't know, that's weird. It's not uncommon to use the n-word with an a at the end, but I don't know. I just was like, is this like a thing that happened? Am I just interpreting this wrong? Uh, I don't know. So it'd be cool if someone would comment on that because that was off-putting and I didn't really like it. Um, I have this thing where like, you know, if you're black and you want to refer to your, you want to use the n-word, um, most people usually use it with an a at the end sort of reclaiming the word you know that's your prerogative you're black you should be able to do whatever you want with the word that you're reclaiming i personally don't use it just because it just has too much traumatic trauma behind it but if you want to reclaim it do you but i just haven't ever seen an instance where i have seen another black person use the n-word with the hard er toward another black person the only time I've seen that is a white person referring to a black person in a derogatory manner. So I want some clear, like clarification on that. I felt a little weird about that, um, but it was still within the community. Um, again, there's a lot of different cultures, so I think that's a lot of the reason why texturism and colorism comes up, but it's going to come up in the community regardless if it's a black only community or there are other brown or people of color uh, in the situation it's gonna happen <sighs> there's hair hair is very much a part of the film um, there's a point in time where Troy is sent to her aunt's house and she uh, you know I think for like a few months and she even celebrates her birthday there it's very much suburbia in the south um, in the 70s versus her like city life in Brooklyn and it's a lot more slower paced. At first Troy is totally against it because her parents like just drop her off there. They think she needs to be around, you know, some other girls, a different atmosphere. But you'll find later that it wasn't just that, I don't think. I think it a little bit was just that, but there's something else going on with the mom. And anyway, Troy goes to her aunt's house and you know her aunt is very bougie very my shit don't stink you know she's all about relaxers and hot combs and troy's mom is more the natural route where she usually keeps troy's hair in braids so she was a little pissed off when she saw troy's hair not in braids when she came home anyway it's a whole thing and i think it's super cool how this element is added in the film because it takes you into the south suburbia and seeing you know a rather again successful black family living in the suburbs in the 70s um, they have money. I think her cousin was adopted and they even talk about how she was adopted and she's like, she's not my real mother. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> it's funny. And then there's a whole thing with the dog, which is actually a little sad. Um, versus her dog at home, who's a little more wild. You know, it, I guess it could be a metaphor for how the suburbs is a little slower and then how 
the city is more fast paced and Troy's just not used to it. But I do think that uh, when things like this are put onto children, their environment changes, they change with it um, and usually reject it at first unless they're just used to that scenario or the people there. I don't think she's super close to her aunt at this point. Um, until a little later, but even in the end, she's just ready to go home. Um, and I think her uncle, who is the brother of Woody, and who actually helps the family out a lot when they're like low on cash and stuff, he jumps in and like they go pick her up. And um, she, we get this really sad realization that her mom is sick. Um, and that crash happens really quickly. But even before this, you know, you don't really see it coming. Um, you knew they were having money problems. Um, you knew that the mom actually wanted Troy to go somewhere for the summer for a while. That's why I'm not entirely sure if it was because of what happens to the mom or not. Um, but again, Troy is this like one girl in this family of boys besides her mom who's rather young. She looks like she's probably in elementary school, maybe about to be in middle school, living life as a kid which isn't always easy and having all these things going on and then putting her in the suburbs and how that affects her and how she changes and how she rejects it it's so it's so coming of age that i don't know what else to say about it it's great it's beautiful i didn't realize how much it was like young adult middle grade anyway uh there's this beautiful moment where carolyn sends letters to Troy when she's in the, you know, in the south suburbs with her aunt. And instead of just having Troy's voiceover reading the letters, we get Troy, um, how do we do this? We get Troy's mom, Carolyn, doing the voiceover. And there's sort of a, a parallel going on here where we get scenes of Troy reading the letters, um, existing in that other space during the same time as her mom. And then the mom is speaking at the camera, breaking the fourth wall as she's telling Troy what's what Troy would essentially be reading in the letters. Like, this is what's been going on. Can't wait for you to get back, but I hope you're having a great time. Um, and this happens again. So when Troy gets back home, she finds out that her mom is sick, but not only is her mom sick, she's like last route sick. She has cancer. And so she finds out her mom is sick and then they all go home and they're home with their dad who's trying to keep everything together. And, you know, at this point the parents had made up from that fight and I think he had moved back in and then they had taken her to the suburbs. So they made up within that time. It was just, you know, it was a pretty decent fight. Um, and anyway, the mom's sick and she has cancer and it's like the last stages of cancer and the way that the dad tells the kids he comes upstairs he just like lets them know so the kids know it's serious mom mom's like really sick right and so the realization for young children again when black films are made by black people with black cast for a black audience you finally get to see black characters not just being, you know, workers, laborers, and dehumanized. You see them as human beings. Crickland does this very well, right? So these kids are obviously taken aback, like, what? You know, one minute mom's just sick, one minute mom's in the hospital, now one minute mom's like dying? You know, that's scary for children. And then not only that, 
but she does die. Like, their mother dies in the film. So, there's so many stages to this film, and I didn't go in order because I just wanted to do sort of a free commentary and I wanted to bring up scenes, but it's heavy. It gets heavy. And I think, again, I really like films that get heavy like this because I think so often childhood is seen as something that's always really beautiful and sweet and wrapped up in a bow when really childhood is supposed to be the best time of your life, really, if we're really thinking about it. And parents try to keep as much of the real world away from their kid as long as possible. But the thing is, and the reality is, that adulthood and the real world will always find its way no matter what you do. I'm just saying, it will in one way or another, and that is the reality of life, even as a child. This is probably one of the worst levels of it, of course, but, you know, to lose a parent. And for Troy, um, they have a funeral and everything. She holds it in most of the time. Um, but then, you know, there's a scene, again, such a heartfelt, beautiful scene of her crying in the bathroom on her dad's lap. It's so sad. And it's such a good moment to see a black man in a less masculine, poof, 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 you know, fight, fight, fight way. He's just sitting there with his daughter and letting her cry as she's grieving the loss of her mother. He even says something like, you know, finally I was waiting for you, you know, to cry. Something similar to that. And that's so fucking sad. Oh my God. And you assume that off camera, you know, the boys have been super sad and crying and the dad, of course, and the dad is actually not super disciplined. He's not like the disciplinary in the film overall. He seems very like carefree and, you know, very musician, right? Um, but the type that's like really free flowing, artsy, and the mom was much more the disciplinary. But this is still very, a beautiful sight to see. And I loved it. And of course it takes time, but you do start to see the family come back together, starting to get into a routine as they're grieving the loss of the mother. And in the end, the mom does another, she breaks the fourth wall again, but at this point she's, she knows she's passed. She's no longer with anyone. She's, she's dead. And she's speaking at the camera to her family, breaking the fourth wall there's no parallel because she no longer exists so it wouldn't be in like the same time as we're seeing different shots in the same time she's just speaking voiceover somewhat of an angel okay so the film is incredible it has its flaws just like any film which is what I really wanted to speak about in the beginning but it, it's incredible if you haven't seen Crooklyn what are you waiting for? Go watch Crooklyn by Spike Lee. Spike Lee has done it again. <laughs> I'll probably have a lot of Spike Lee films for the black film series. Because like I said, he's he is a lot of black film. And Crooklyn is one of those staples that I would put down as a, a black film classic. And I don't think there was any other way to start the black film series. Um, starting it with Crooklyn, with it being very coming of age, and <laughs> summer vibes, it's definitely worth the watch, and I will leave you with that.
Thanks.